The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm flying solo yet again for today's episode, but don't worry, I plan on having plenty of guests throughout the season as we always do. I just wanted to give you my quick thoughts on the match against Mallorca on Sunday, but I also wanted to get our Kim Min Jae player profile up, so that is why I'm taking this episode on my own. I have only one part for you today, so let's get right into it. The match finished 1-1 on goals from Victor Osimen and Antonio Raio for Mallorca, both goals have raised important questions. On the first, will Victor Osimen be the designated penalty taker this season? On the second, how long or perhaps how soon before Kepa arrives? This was supposed to be a friendly match, but Mallorca played as if there was a cup on the line. They were often late on their tackles, much to the dismay of Javicha Kvaraschelia, Chucky Lozano, Elif Elmas, and others. Kim Min Jae made his first appearance since he joined Napoli, and Luciano Spalletti had some interesting comments after the match. Finally, if you paid to watch the match on Facebook Live, as did I, you probably were not too happy watching the match. We'll cover all of that in this review, but first, let's get to the starting lineups. Luciano Spalletti lined up in a 4-3-3 with Alex Meret back in goal. Kim Min Jae and Amir Rachmani started at centre-back. Mario Rui started at left-back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right-back. Stanislav Lobotka played as the regista with Piotr Zielinski to his left and Fabian Ruiz to his right. Kvica Kvaratskhelia started on the left wing, Chucky Lozano started on the right wing, and Victor Osimen played at striker. For Mallorca, Javier Aguirre lined up in a 3-4-1-2 formation with Predrag Rajkovic in goal. Josep Gaia started in the center of the back three with Capeta to his left and Antonio Raio to his right. Clément Grenier and Idrisu Baba played in the center of the midfield with Jaume Costa to the left and Pablo Maffeo to the right. Finally, Dani Rodriguez played as the trequartista behind Abdon Prats and Angel Rodriguez. So those were the starting lineups, next let's get to the match. Let's start with the goals first. We scored our goal from the penalty spot in the ninth minute. We were awarded the penalty after Mario Rui crossed the ball into the area and Grenier handled the ball. Osimen stepped up and smashed the ball into the roof of the goal to put Napoli ahead. That has a lot of us wondering whether Osimen will be the designated penalty taker this season. It seems like it will be either Victor or Cavara. 
I think both would be fine, but if I had to choose one, I'd rather it be Osimhen for a couple of reasons. First, I think we're most likely going to sell Victor next summer, so by allowing him to take the penalty kicks, his goal tally will increase and that should increase his resale value. Even being conservative, I think allowing Victor to take the penalty kicks could increase his goal production from say 20 to 30 goals. Also, Victor wins more penalty kicks than any other player on the team, so I only think it's fair that he reaps the rewards for earning those penalties. And finally, Cavada is young, he's playing in a new league, he seems to be very confident, and I'm confident in his abilities, but I'd rather avoid putting additional pressure on him. Let him settle in, let him get some goals under his belt, and then maybe allow him to take some penalty kicks after that. Let's move on to the Mallorca goal, which was scored by Raio about 10 minutes into the second half. The goal started with a cross from the left wing, Vedat Murici won the header in the area, Meret stopped the initial shot, and Raio had in the rebound. Before I get to Meret, who is getting very difficult to defend at this point, I do want to point out that the defending on this play was rather poor. Raio made a late run into the area and no one picked him up. Elmas was slow to track back and Leo Ostegard and Mario Rui weren't marking anyone while Juan Jesus marked ex-Lazio player Vedat Murici. Then Jesus stepped up on Raio to defend the cross and mistimed his jump which is how Murici won the header in front of the goal. And finally Ostegard turned away expecting Meret to make the easy save which was how Raio was open on the rebound. So the defending was quite poor all around, but at the end of the day, Meret simply has to be better. It wasn't as though Murici smashed the ball on target and Meret could do nothing more but get a hand on the ball. It was a slow header that was straight at him. A keeper at that level has to catch the ball or at the very least, push it away from the danger area. I've been a pretty strong defender of Meret, but like I said, it is getting very difficult to defend him at this point. Spalletti was asked about Meret after the match, and though he said Meret could be the number one for a big club like Napoli, and he made some important interventions, he also commented on Meret's character and confidence. The comment that most people focused on was when Spalletti said, for now he is our goalkeeper and we cherish him. Of course, that suggests that beyond right now, Meret may not be our goalkeeper. All indications are that Chelsea's Kepa could be a Napoli player as soon as this week. According to Ciro Venerato of Rai, Kepa and his agents landed in Milano on Tuesday to close the negotiations with Napoli. Apparently, they've already agreed to a dry loan that would see Chelsea pay 75% of Kepa's salary. According to Sportac.com, when Kepa signed for Chelsea, they signed a 7-year contract worth £54.6 million, which is an average annual salary of £7.8 million gross, which is about €9.3 million Euros gross. That means Napoli would pay him about €2.3 million Euros gross, which is well within our price range. Now, at first, I was wondering why a club would be willing to pay for their player to play for another club, but I have a friend who's a Chelsea fan and he helped me make it make sense. From the Chelsea perspective, they're going to pay Kepa regardless. If they don't transfer him, they are responsible for 100% of his contract. They already know that Edouard Mendy will be their number one this season, so in fact, paying 75% of his contract is actually like getting a 25% discount 
on something they were already going to pay. But the key to this deal is it is a dry loan. That means Kepa can come to Napoli for a season, be a regular starter, and then head back to Chelsea, potentially worth a lot more than when he left. Then Chelsea can look to sell him for a higher price tag. I know EPL clubs are swimming in cash, but between his contract and the transfer fee to Atletico Madrid, Chelsea paid about £125 million for Kepa. Surely they saw the potential in him, and perhaps they feel like he just needs a change in scenery to get his confidence back up again. Apparently, all that remains to be negotiated is the bonus structure. Venerato claims that Chelsea are seeking £3 million in bonuses, £1.5 million for reaching the knockout stage of the Champions League this season. Venerato claims that Chelsea are seeking £3 million in bonuses, £1.5 million for reaching the knockout stage of the Champions League, and another £1.5 for finishing in the top four. Napoli, meanwhile, are willing to pay half of that. So what does that mean for Alex Meret? I think there's a reason why Alex Meret has not signed his contract extension yet, and is likely because he's waiting to see who Napoli bring in. Meret wants to be a starting goalkeeper, he does not want to be the backup again. Now, initially I thought if Napoli purchased someone like Kepa, Meret would demand a sale. As it turns out, Napoli could be looking to do something similar to what Chelsea is doing, except we won't pay the salary. That is... We could still extend Meret's contract, but on the condition that we sign a dry loan to another club. Apparently there is interest from Leicester City who could sell Kasper Schmeichel and Torino who could use an upgrade between the posts. So we loan Kepa from Chelsea, we loan Meret to another club, then at the end of the season Kepa returns to Chelsea and Meret returns to Napoli. If Meret does well abroad, we can either bring him back to play for Napoli or try to sell him at a higher price than he would have garnered had he stayed. Perhaps we even sell him to the club that we loaned him to. Meanwhile, we sign someone like Salvatore Sirigu to be the backup to Kepa, and we're taken care of at goalkeeper. Now, I've seen some people say that we're better off keeping Meret as the backup to Kepa. That only works if Meret is happy to accept that role, and clearly that's not what he wants. Also, keeping Meret would limit our ability to increase his value. In fact, we'd probably decrease his value by having him sit on the bench all season. And finally, we could lower our wage bill with Sirigu. Meret doesn't have a huge salary, but Sirigu would cost next to nothing considering his age and the fact that he's currently without a club. Okay, enough about goalkeepers. Let's move on to the defenders next. There are two defenders in particular that I want to talk about, Kim Min-jae and Leo Ostegaard. Let's start with Kim, who made his debut in this match. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to check out our Kim Min-jae player profile episode with Fenerbahce News UK. I thought Kim put in a solid shift for his first 45 minutes in a Napoli shirt. Most of the time he was making fairly simple passes, but you could see he comes in with a certain understanding of the game and the movements he needs to make. He won 4 or 5 aerial duels, he's so big that more often than not he's going to win the ball in the air. We saw him step up with the ball on one or two occasions, for a big man he has very good control of the ball, and we saw him play a few decent long balls, so all in all I was impressed with Kim. 
Kim and Rachmani were substituted out at the break. By the way, I thought Rachmani was fantastic in the first half as well. His development from a third option to the first center back has been rapid. I suppose it helps to play alongside someone like Koulibaly, but I think Rachmani is quickly becoming one of the leaders of this team. I know we've seen Zielinski wear the armband occasionally, but I would not be surprised if Rachmani became the next in line to Di Lorenzo. He already wears the armband for his home nation of Kosovo. Now, Rachmani and Kim were replaced by Juan Jesus and Leo Ostegaard at the break. Despite being involved in the goal that we conceded, I was really impressed by the play of Ostegaard in the second half. There was one slide tackle he made around the hour mark that was just perfectly timed. He is also very good in the air. He's 8 centimeters shorter than Kim, but Ostegaard has a ridiculous vertical leap on him. I saw some footage on Calcio Napoli 24 from one of the training sessions at Castel di Sangro where they were practicing set pieces and Ostegaard was just devouring the ball in the area. Judging from what I've seen so far, I think this kid has huge potential. I would not be surprised at all if he takes over for Juan Jesus as the third center back. Now, don't get me wrong. I like Jesus. I respect how he played for us last season, but he's getting older. He's slowing down a little bit. I think his value is more in what he does off the pitch than what he does on the pitch. He can be a mentor to a young man like Ostegaard and for many of the young players on the team. So even as a fourth center back, I think Jesus adds value to the team. Ostegaard is only 22 years old, so this is De Laurenti's succession planning at its finest. Rachmani is 28, so as Rachmani gets older, say 32, 33 years old, Ostegaard will just be entering his prime at 26, 27 years old. Okay, let's move on to the forwards next. I don't have a whole lot to say here. I just wanted to point out a couple of things. One is that I thought Lobotka, Osimen, and Lozano linked up really well in the first half. I think I've said it before, but I'll say it again. With the front three of Cavara, Osimen, and Lozano, we are going to have incredible pace up top, which means we should also have an explosive counterattack. Once again, Cavada played really well. I'm starting to be a little repetitive with him because he continues to impress. We saw his dribbles again. He nearly scored a Palo Neto after Victor cleverly took a quick throw-in. At one point, he hustled back to help defend on the opposite side of the pitch, no less, so that was great to see as well. There was a scary moment where he was fouled and fell a bit awkwardly. He stayed down for a while and I feared he might have injured his knee. Fortunately, he continued to play on. The fact that he started the second half was a very good sign. I'm sure they would have done more tests and checks at the break. Now, he did have a bandage on the back of his left thigh in training on Tuesday, and he was limited in training, but by all accounts, he is not hurt. It may just have been precautionary. If he plays against Girona on Wednesday, then there's probably nothing to worry about. If he does not play, then we may have to keep an eye on that situation. In terms of the other forwards, we did not see Pitania or Unas in this match. We know the club is working on selling them, so that may have been an indication that they are close to a move. However, that would also imply that Zerbin and Gaetano are close to being transferred as well, because neither of them featured in the match either. I believe all of them played in the subsequent friendly against Castel di Sangro, so I may be reading more into this than is really there. We won that friendly 8-0 by the way. 
We did get a brief appearance from Alessandro Zanoli. He replaced Di Lorenzo in the 75th minute. He was a player I was wondering about as Zerbin played in his place against Adana Demirspor, so it seems like Zanoli could still have a place in the squad this season. Okay, so that's all I had to say about the match itself. There are two last subjects I want to address before I wrap up this review. The first is Luciano Spalletti's comments after the match. Henry Bell from the excellent In the Shadow of Vesuvio podcast asked for my thoughts on Spalletti's comments. If you haven't seen or heard the comments, Spalletti was asked about the Mercato and he said, This is a company that in certain respects does things correctly. We decided to lower the salary cap. We can target those who fall within this cap. There are some important young players who can fall under the cap. It is clear that if you give up a piece of the market and the others use it, they bring home someone who is immediately ready without having to work hard. Working like this over time will probably lead to a healthy and strong society. Forgive me if my translation isn't perfect, but I think it's slightly better than the Google Translate version. Okay, so let's break this down. First, I think he makes a couple of valid points in terms of how the club is run. When he says the club does things correctly and refers to a healthy and strong society, he's referring to a club that does not live beyond its means. I know there is no trophy for being financially stable and that fans don't like that De Laurentiis doesn't spend as much as they want him to. I think it is very important for us to operate this way. We don't have the financial backing of someone like Exor and we don't want to leverage the club to the point where we have to take on a high risk loan like Suning did and Lee Young Hung did before that. On the comment about young players who fall under the salary cap or salary ceiling if you use the literal translation and the slice of the market, I think that's a specific reference to Raspadori. He's literally a player whose salary would be below our supposed 3 million euro ceiling and he's a player who pretty much walks into any Serie A squad. So if you don't sign him and someone else does like Juventus, then others could improve while we don't. Personally, I don't buy these rumors of Juventus being interested. Many people, including our close friend Gaetano Solazzo, have pointed out that Sassuolo could be using this Juve story to drive up the price of Raspadori, but a lot of people are reporting that Raspadori only wants to play for Napoli, so if that's the player's will, then there is a realistic chance that we could sign him. In terms of our objectives this season, Spalletti said, we play for the best, we want to improve upon last year's result. That said, nothing is guaranteed. You go out to play and work hard from morning to night, but then you have to go and play. You have to compete against the giants of teams. Today for an hour we showed that we can play against them. That's pretty consistent with Spalletti's previous comments about how it will be difficult to get back into the top four. I pretty much agree with Raf Biz's comments on the latest episode of the Napoli rant. I think Spalletti is protecting his own ass a little bit with these comments. If he comes out and says, our goal is to win the Scudetto, and we don't, then he basically guarantees that he loses his job. I know we as fans want a coach and an owner who have ambition, but we'll also be the first to say, you told us you wanted to win the Scudetto and didn't. It's much safer to set the bar lower, at least publicly, and then overachieve. With the transfer market that Roma are having, most quote-unquote experts are picking them to come in fourth. 
I think they could, but just like we need to wait and see how our new signings perform, I think we also need to wait and see how Roma's new signings perform. Yes, they are signing players who have Serie A experience, but guys like Dybala and possibly Bellotti, if they close that deal, have struggled to stay healthy in recent seasons. I think if we can bring in a new keeper, which like I said, seems close to being done, If we can bring in Raspadori and find a position for him, because at the moment, I'm not exactly sure where he will play, maybe as a number 10 in the 4-2-3-1, and if we can replace Petania with Simeone, then we should definitely be competing for a top 4 position, and I think we'd still have an outside chance at the Scudetto. If we finish outside of the top 4, Spalletti will be sacked, and then he can say that he lost all his top players, and they were not adequately replaced. Very quickly, one last thing that I want to touch on is the audio-video issues with the Facebook live stream. I was one of the 1,700 people who paid 10 euros to watch this match on Napoli's Facebook Live, and for the majority of the first half, there were issues with the feed. There were points where the video got really choppy to the point where you couldn't really tell what was happening, and even when the video was restored, the audio was a few seconds ahead so you could hear what was happening from the commentary, before seeing what was happening. With how passionate Carlo Alvino is, that was really, really frustrating, and you can see how frustrated people were with the live comments. Most people were using the angry emoji and demanding a refund. Meanwhile, Mallorca was apparently showing the match for free on their YouTube channel, so let that be a lesson to me and everyone else who was watching on Facebook. Check the opponent's YouTube channel before you pay. Now, I really wonder whether this was a smart decision by the club. 1,700 viewers paying 10 euros each amounts to 17,000 euros per match. For four friendlies at Castel di Sangro, that's a total of 68,000 euros, which does not move the needle as far as the club's revenues go. However, it could serve to piss off a lot of fans. The club could have bought a lot of goodwill with fans by making these matches available online for free, and instead they've done exactly the opposite. If each of those fans says, you know what, since the club did this to me, I'm not going to buy a shirt this year, the club would actually lose 136,000 euros. Even if only half of the viewers said that, the club would lose money. Once again, this is just very short-sighted from the club. Okay, that is where I will leave it. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Pod. In case you haven't heard, I've started a website as well, so you can find even more content entirely for free at ForzaNapoliPress.com. I will be back later in the week to review our match on Wednesday against Girona, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre! Podcast Network.